Hi, everyone. Welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. With me on the line is Byron Reese. Welcome to the show, Byron. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. The pleasure is all mine. So I've been doing uh, some research uh, on you, not only on your Twitter account, but I've uh, been reading up on all the books that you have written, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. You're an acclaimed uh, speaker, entrepreneur, um, and many, many other things. But I'd love you to maybe kick us off, Byron. Give us the elevator pitch. How do you describe yourself? What do we need to know? Well, uh, by morning, uh, before the sun comes up, I'm a writer. And then after the sun comes up, I have a company that I run. And uh, my wife and I homeschool four kids. So depending on when during the day you catch me, I will have a different hat on, as I'm sure most of us do. Yeah, absolutely. So you're based in uh, Austin. Uh, what keeps you busy there these days, apart from speaking and writing books and that kind of thing and homeschooling children? Well, we uh, we live in an old home from the 1800s, and we're uh, only the third people to ever live in it, which is kind of cool. And so I, I would say we spend time uh, working on that when, uh, when, when there's nothing else to do. So you've obviously written uh, four different books. Um, which book do you feel resonates most with entrepreneurs uh, from your experience and why? They're all part of, I guess, a journey. The first one I wrote was called Infinite Progress, and that was just me trying to figure out what the future, what I thought the future would look like. And I, it's an optimistic view of the future. And then I wrote one called The Fourth Age, which is a philosophy book about artificial intelligence, because I wondered, like, what is it? Like, is it a thing? Is it alive? Is it a, a what? In fact, that whole book is about whether computers can be conscious or not. Then I wrote a, a, a science book called Wasted, which was an, anal an analysis of waste and how it happens and how to stop it. I did that because I was personally very interested in it. And then there's a book that's coming out in just a few days called Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. I wrote that book because I was very interested in how people and animals were different. Because as much as people want to say, you know, we're just another animal, like, look around, you know, we're not. Like, we live a completely different, we're like aliens compared mm. to all the other animals. So that's the book that's coming out. Uh, yeah. Yep. So Byron, um, I kind of agree with you in the sense of the world is getting better, but could you unpack that for our viewers around the world from your perspective? You've obviously done a lot of speaking on the subjects of how the world is actually improving and becoming better. Why is that? Well, my, my logic is, consists of just three pretty basic things. One is that, um, you know, there was a time when there were very few people left, just under a thousand, we think. Uh, we were an endangered species, and nobody would have ever bet that we would be the ones that, like, kind of won. You know, we would come out on top because it looked really touch and go. But what happened is we we created uh, something called technology that is able to multiply what we're able to do. And that's it's that takes our bodies, which are run on 100 watts of, of power, and it multiplies it, and we can do so much more. And so our ability grows up, goes up over time. You know, in much of human history, there just wasn't enough stuff for everybody. And now we have learned how to kind of overcome a lot of that through using technology. And that's the first thing I believe. Um, also, that, that that has been a worldwide phenomena. Uh, well, no, and the, the second thing is I think that we've had, uh, you know, a good run of 10,000 years or so where things just keep getting better every year around the world. Now, there are always setbacks, I know that, but if you compare kind of any place in the world to it 100 years ago or 1,000 or 5,000, it's probably better there by almost any measure. Life expectancy, infant mortality, standard of living, access to education, individual liberty, status of women, all of that is probably better now. And then the third thing I, I deeply believe is that um, people are basically good. Most people are. Most people would rather just create something than destroy. Um, and so if, if, you, if you tell the story of, of human history as, you know, for 10,000 years, we've used technology to, to increase what we're able to do. And because most of us are trying to do good, uh, things have gotten better. And there's no reason to think that they're going to stop getting better. Yep, couldn't agree with you more. So your book, I'm going to bring it up on screen for everybody, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think, How Humans Learned to See the Future and Shape It. Why did you write this book? What was important to you to get this 
thought leadership piece out into the world? I, I wrote the book uh, primarily, and my books often follow my own interests. I saw a documentary uh, put out by um, Werner Herzog about uh, the cave art of Chauvet, which is a cave in France that has this amazingly beautiful artwork, like just the kind of stuff I'd hang on my wall. And what's mind expanding about it is that was our first art. It wasn't like we had stick figure cave art that got a little better, a little better, a little better. And then one day you get Chauvet. Not at all. Just there was nothing, nothing, then nothing, and then nothing, and then nothing, and then Chauvet. And what was fascinating about it is it wasn't just the, that art, but that um, there's a lot of technology going on in there. They used uh, extenders and adherents in the in the paints that they made. They had to build scaffolding to paint up high. They needed a black, and they didn't want to use charcoal because that's just dark gray. They wanted black, and so their source of black pigment was 140 miles away. And even even to get that, you had to heat it to 1600 degrees, and then it so. All of that kind of happened at once, and concurrent with it, we find our the oldest musical instruments, and concurrent with that, we find the oldest representations of people, and and it looks like that just happened in an instant, and I do think it did. So I started writing that chapter, and then I was like, well, what did happen? And then I started writing about um, what's been called the Great Leap Forward, or the Awakening, or any of these things where where humans went from being... Well, how, how humans suddenly got all of those abilities. It was as if a um, radioactive spider bit us, really. It was that dramatic of a thing. And I wanted to understand that further. And so I got into all of that. And I think that what happened is, you know, we got language. And with the language, the thing we we used language for was not to communicate. That wasn't why how it came about. Uh, it became how we think. We think in language. And without language to organize our thoughts, uh, well, there's a quote in the book from Helen Keller before her, she describes her life before her teacher came. And she said that she didn't even realize she was a thing that was different than the universe. Like there was just being, and she didn't know there was time. And, uh, and then she said her teacher came and she learned to think and she became conscious in her own words, she became conscious. So I think what happened is people got the ability to see the future. That's what we can do. We can draw on specific things in the in the past, and we can see the future. Even a minute in the future, we can say, hmm, I could do this or that, and if I did this, that might happen. So we started telling ourselves these stories. And that's the whole section one of the book. And then section two is dice, because what happened is once we got the ability to see the future, uh, we wanted to predict it. It wasn't enough to just be able to imagine it, but to predict it. And so section two is about how we created probability theory. And that sounds like uh, chloroform and print. I, I know. But there are no equations or anything like that. It, it's because we had to change how we think. Why does the future happen the way it does? We had to, had to change our answer to that question. In fact, can I show a visual aid? Yeah, absolutely. Go for All it. All right. So why do things happen the way they do, right? So there were all these theories. They were fated to happen. Or there's a doctrine of necessity. It had to happen that way. A led to B led to C led to D. If you round, wound the tape back over and hit play again, the same thing would happen. All these different theories. The one they didn't pick was randomness. Now, this is something known as a Galton box. I'm about to flip it. And when I do, it's going to release all of these BBs. Uh-huh. And the BBs can start falling through that little hole. And they're going to hit one of these pieces of plastic and they can bounce to the left or the right. Then they're going to hit another one and then bounce to the left or the right. And here's the, the thing is that when you do this, every time you do it, it forms a normal distribution. And you can sit there all day long and do it. And even though every one of those bounces is random, they always make a normal distribution. If you ever did this and you got a big U or a flat line, I mean, it's like, Universe is about to end because it doesn't work that way. And that that was a big surprise to people because if I asked, if somebody had asked me, if you flip a coin a thousand times, how many times will it come up heads? I know how to answer that question, about 500. But I've only been taught that. I've never flipped a coin a thousand times. And, and, and if I did not know that, I, I would have guessed, oh, who knows? Sometimes it'll be 200. 
Then it'll be 900, and then it'll be 100, then it'll be 500. But that isn't the case. Mm. The chances that it's under 400 or over 600 are one in billions and billions and billions. It has never happened in the history of the universe. And so, even though it's random coin tosses that are unrelated to each other, there's a lot of predictability in it. Like, we know certain things about that. And, and we use that to create probability theory. And that became the second part of the book. But how, what did we do with that once we could predict the future? And then and, uh, that got us to section three, which is rocks that think. It's a metaphor, of course, for computer chips, rocks, silicon that thinks. And what happened is, you know, we could predict the future now. We have probability. But we did it with the slide rule of paper and pencils. And it was a limit to how much of a world, how much complexity you could embrace with that. Uh, and so long, long about 1952, we invented the transistor computer. We spun that up and, and we got it to do our predicting for us. And that's uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I return to that topic. And that's kind of like you can see maybe how each one of those things kind of took me to the next one. I didn't know where it would end when I when I started it. I, I'm fortunate that I could just start writing and, oh, that's good. Oh, maybe I'll do this. And then you figure out how they piece together and then you can tell a story. Very, very interesting. Lots to unpack there. I'm curious to um, maybe start with seeing the future. Do you see the future or do you envision it? I know a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, they are visionaries. I regard myself as a visionary. I, like, I see gaps and in the market, and then I'm able to commercialize that gap really quickly. Um, where I struggle in terms of seeing the future, quote-unquote, is like I can build you a house, but I'm not going to build you a skyscraper. <clears throat> it's a different type of visionary and a different type of person, I think, to to build a house versus a skyscraper using the analogy for a business. So um, do we see the future as as something that is, um, let's just say, not cause-driven? In other words, it's happening, but I can see the future. It's like a car crash before it happens, but I'm not in the car. I'm not driving the car. Or do we envision the future? In other words, I imagine a world as being different to the way that it is now. Um, and I'm as a founder entrepreneur, I'm able to put the things in place so that that vision can start to become a reality, a la Elon Musk, for instance. Well, I would, I would say the latter. You know, I, I kind of glossed over the different w causes of why the future happens the way it does. You know, I just mentioned two or three. Um, there were ones that... Um, there is one that, that basically just says it's, it's will. It's human will that drives it. And that's what makes it, things happen is because people decide to do it. And that we are actually the, the acting force in history. Uh, you know, we're the determiner of what happens. None of them are. We all kind of live a. Um, we, most of us don't live like this perfectly consistent life with how we, uh, you know, we, we blend those things together. Sometimes we do think things were faded. Like maybe we don't literally believe it, but it's as if, uh, but most of the time we, we create, we create the future, which I think is what you were describing. Mm. Science fiction's always been really good at that. Right. Because um, it's a, it's a, it's not a prediction. It's a story. And um, I used to get really annoyed by pessimistic kind of, dystopian movies because i have to go see them all because people ask me about them and then i sit there and i watch them and i'm like that's not gonna happen that way like, oh come on like it's so tired <laughs> and i sit there kind of with a bad attitude until uh i read a quote by clark or heinlem uh and it was sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening and i was like wow okay cautionary tales I get that all of a sudden. I get that. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, we have all of these possibilities ahead of us. What what we learned to do in 1652 in Act 2 of the book was make predictions about which of those things were more likely to happen. Um, I'm curious, uh, Byron, to maybe unpack what you see in terms of the future. So, if we are able to see the future from happening, as an example, you can look at technology trends like the development of AI, machine learning, you know, nanotechnology, all these things. And because you understand where you are now, you're able to extrapolate based on data points like where we are, are well, where we could go in the future. Now, 
in the future, do you see the threat of AI, for instance, as being a threat? Or do you see it as being a, a true enabler of, uh, of the human species in terms of becoming you know, a multi-planetary species, for instance? Is it a positive outcome in the future when you look at technology like AI, for instance? Or do you see this as maybe swinging one way or the other, down or up? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I'll start off by saying I hold a minority viewpoint on that question, which I'll I'll share here, but I don't want to represent it like I'm speaking for the great mass of people who are up on this topic. Um, When you use the the phrase artificial intelligence, there's an unfortunate thing about it, which is uh, it has two different meanings that aren't related to each other. It's not like one's artificial intelligence and when it's artificial intelligence light or something like that. There's two very different pieces of technology. One is something we know how to do already and that we call it narrow AI. It's pretty basic technology. You take a lot of data about the past and then you look for patterns in it. And then when you get those, when you use those patterns, then to make estimates about the future, to make predictions. And we know how to do that. 99% of the money in AI is spent there you use it every day. It's your um, spam filter in your email. It's a GPS. It routes you through traffic and all of that. Then there's another meaning of artificial intelligence, which is general intelligence. And that's an AI that can do everything a person can do and more. That is uh, Commander Data of Star Trek. It's C-3PO out of Star Wars. It's Ex Machina. It's uh, Scarlett Johansson in Her. Uh, that is general intelligence. And that's the thing that people are afraid of. Well, the first one people are afraid it's going to take all the jobs, and we can talk about that. But in terms of actually being afraid, it's that second one. Now, we don't know how to make general intelligence. Uh, but I used to host a, a show about it, about AI. And I got 110 of like the best AI practitioners I could find on the show. And I would ask them all, do you think we're going to build general intelligence? All of them but three said yes. Hmm. even though we don't know how. Um, and then you say, well, why? Why do you think we're going to do it if we don't know how? And they would say, well, we, of course we can build a machine with general intelligence because we are machines with general intelligence. And that, that is the core assumption, is that people are machines. That is the core assumption. And if it is true, then, yeah, someday we'll build a mechanical person, and then it'll get twice as good, twice as good. I don't believe people are machines. Uh, I don't even think you have to get all like spiritual to have that view. Uh, I have my reasons for not thinking it, but if if people are not machines, then that means there's all these things computers can't ever do and that only we can do. And that's what I believe. So I think um, what happens is there's all this fear about it because we do this thing called reasoning from fictional evidence. And if you see enough times these... Uh, AIs go rogue, you start thinking that could happen. And I'm glad like their eyes always turn red when they do, because that's a big tell. And I'm going to look for that, right? Like people are, are, uh, they, they learn to reason from fictional evidence. I do it too, but it doesn't mean that those things are true. Now I, I could, I could go and talk about narrow AI and whether we need to worry about job loss. If that's where your question is going, I'm happy to address that. No, no, all right. 
There no, you go. Not I'm at not all. afraid of AI in the least. And we're never going to have general intelligence. Wow, that's uh, that's awesome. Have you um, ever come across a blog called uh, Wait But Why? Yeah. It's an amazing, in fact, the, the first time I really understood what you're talking about, which I think um, many of our viewers couldn't, you know, could benefit from, if you head up to waitbutwhy.com, uh, it's written, it's a stick figure caricature type blog uh, written by a guy whose name escapes me now, but it's brilliantly done. And he wrote about a narrow AI, general AI, and super uh, super AI, like which yep. could basically re like work with materials and stuff that <laughs> and rebuild the earth. You know what I mean? It's like crazy, crazy stuff. But it 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 really gives one a perspective on the to your point, the fictional based evidence that you can you know, choose to believe to be true or not to your question to those hundred AI experts, right? Like, do you believe we'll ever build general intelligence? So, you know, um, it's a very uh, great resource for anyone who's trying to understand more around kind of what you're talking about. Um, one of the things, uh, Byron, that scares me to death is Boston Robotics um, and the robots that they're building. Uh, it's amazing. It's beautiful to watch. and yet, But for me, it's like, holy shit. Like, what on earth is going to be babysitting my grandchildren, <laughs> you know, in 30, 35 years time? Um, and so on the, con on, the, on the subject of robots, um, so there's AI, which can live everywhere. But in the context of robot, do you see the application of robotics being uh, something that we are potentially not fully appreciating uh, at the moment as humans? Because if I look at those Boston Robotics machines, it blows my mind where we are now. Um, and there was rumblings yesterday on social media about uh, Elon's uh, robot. It's like human type robot thing, which is driven through AI, uh, that that's actually going to be released like imminently. That's what the uh, the blurbs were, blogs and things were saying on um, on social media. What's your view on robotics and are we fully appreciating how much the world is going to change through the through robots, as an example? I guess there's two things. The, the, the chances that the robots are going to be better, quote-unquote, better than us, I don't believe. But people, we have this idea that, that there are humans who are high-skilled workers and low-skilled workers. But that's not really a good description of humans. Every human can do 10,000 different things. Every human can brush their teeth. Oh, not every human, but virtually every human can brush their teeth. Every human can um, dig a hole. Every human could climb a ladder and get something. And, you know, so when I think about, like, using a robot as a, as a waiter, it's like there's 5,000 things that waiters have to deal with, you know, spit up and spill drinks and all these things. And you're not ever going to build a robot. That, that is programmed to do all of those things. So I think what, what we're going to end up building are things that uh, are, are, have specific narrow uses. And like you mentioned, caregiving. And I, I do get concerned about it. And again, I'm going to sound like an old person here because there was a guy named Weizenbaum who was an early computer pioneer. And back in the 60s, he wrote a chatbot called uh, Eliza. And it was very simple because it was the 60s. And you would tell Eliza, you would say, you'd type, I, I, I feel bad today. And then it would say, why do you feel bad today? And then you would say, I feel bad today because of my mother. Why did your mother make you feel bad today? And so forth. Very simple. But what Weizenbaum saw is that people were pouring their hearts out to it, even though they knew it was a chatbot. And he, he made, and he turned on it and became anti all of that. And he said that when the computer says, I understand, it's just a lie. There's nothing, there's no I there. And there's nothing that understands anything. I get worried when we name these things. We give them human names. Uh, and I, I get even more worried when they're made to look like humans because we've clawed our way from savagery to today uh, with a lot of hard work. And along the way, we invented something we call human rights. And the idea is that there are certain things you cannot do to a human being no matter what, no matter how bad they are. We don't torture people in public for amusement, as an example. There are, and so we've created these things called human rights. And 
And if we start building things that look like humans and have names like humans and sound like humans, and then when they break, we throw them in the in the garbage heap, uh, you wonder if that has a corrosive effect on it. So when Grandpa slips and breaks his hip, we throw him in the garbage heap too. I mean, like, at some point, if you're making things that look like people and sound like people or name like people and talk like people, and then you treat them as objects uh, and and you just... Go defuse that bomb or whatever. I do think it has a corrosive effect on humans. So I'm in the Weizenbomb camp that it's a mistake to put robots in positions where people will develop emotional attachments to them. And it will happen, of course. What we know is that when people send their Roomba off, you know the Roomba, when people send that off to be repaired, they don't actually want a replacement. They want their Roomba back. That was their Roomba. Like they like their Roomba. And when you see how attached people get to their pets and and even inanimate objects, you know it's going to happen. And I just worry what effect it's going to have on our notion of human rights. Well, it, it poses an interesting question, right? I don't know. Also recently, uh, there was that Google engineer who was working on Google's uh, Lambda project. It's going to bring it up on screen for everyone. And uh, he was saying like the Google engine is basically this guy – um, and he's an engineer and he basically says, look, this AI has come to, to life. Um, and he, they were playing back, uh, some of the interactions between him and this AI and the, you know, from the, from the face of it, it does feel like there's no real difference in this AI being, so to speak, or question mark on that, but this AI machine and its ability to reason, feel emotion, and all these things just like a normal human. Um, and it raised an interesting question in terms of like the response from people around the world. They were basically saying, look, well, if this thing is sentient, surely AI should also have rights. Do you feel like that is a eventuality? Should we ever create general intelligence? Do you remember like the name of your first grade teacher or color of your first bike or anything like that no do you remember um a themed birthday you had growing up a cake with something on it i remember my face being pushed into a bowl of flour once <laughs> there you go okay hey, yeah. do you think about that a lot or did, did that just kind of come back uh it came back very recent yeah. yeah the thing is is nobody knows how you did that Nobody, first of all, there's no bowl of flour area of your brain that stores every time you, your head's pushed down a bowl of flour. Um, we don't we don't know where that memory is, and we don't know how you recalled it so quickly. Uh, and so your brain's this big mystery. Now that's fine. Science has no problems with mysteries, but you also have something called a mind. A mind is like everything that that your brain can do that it doesn't seem like it should be able to do, like. Um, you have a you have a sense of humor, but none of yourselves have a sense of humor. Like, where did that come from? But then it's, it's not enough even to get the mind, which is the source of your creativity and all of that. But you are conscious, which means you experience the world. You don't just perceive it. You experience it. A thermometer can tell you the temperature, but it does not feel warmth. It cannot say, ooh, that feels warm. You can do that. We don't even know how. We're conscious. Now, the, the fact that you have a brain you don't understand that gives rise to a mind we can't understand, and consciousness, which which a robot would need. It would need to be able to maybe have an experience of the world. Uh, and, then, and then we sit around and say, well, we're going to build that. And it's like, all right, well, more power to you. But, uh, you know, the people I know who are working in AI right now, their big problems are getting their voice recognition to tell the difference between A and H and H. Like, that's where we're at. The idea that we're going to build these robots that are creative and funny and, and feel pain and feel sad and I mean, it's fiction. It's it's fine. Look, I like going to a CI robot and watch Will Smith battle the, the robots just like the next person. But it's it's all just a fairy tale. It's not a real thing. And uh, or the, the least I can say is nobody's demonstrated that we know how to build something like that. I, I just don't think you can make that in a fab. I don't think you can build consciousness into a chip.
Uh, yeah. I mean, nobody knows, of course. I could be, I could be wrong, but I, I will say that general intelligence has been, you know, five years away for fifty years. Uh, when I ask my guest, when are we going to get it? I, I kept track of all their answers, and they varied between five and five hundred years. That's, um, a bit, that's a big window. Yeah, that just you know, if you took your clothes to the dry cleaner and they said, "Oh, they'll be ready in five to five hundred days," you'll like get a new dry cleaner because it's like, okay, what do I do with that? Um, so I don't, I don't think about sentient robots because I don't. And by the way, you don't want to make general intelligence. I don't think, and sentient robots, because then um, you can't say, go defuse that bomb, right? Because their life has equal worth to yours, and uh, and you can't do that. Like, all the things we want to build robots for, to do the, the so-called D task, dirty, disgusting, dangerous, all of those, we need it to not feel. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know why we would want to build sapient machines, even if we sentient machines, even if we could. Yeah, it it does seem a bit unnatural, right? Uh, so, in other words, like I I just believe that like we're part of nature, um, and what we're building is something that's not part of nature in what at all. Like it's it's not it's machines, parts, technology, silicon, and chips and things. Uh, so it's completely abnormal to like every single second of human existence and Neanderthals and human evolution. Do you know what I'm saying? And now all of a sudden we've got this holy shit moment where it has the potential to become sentient. And I'm curious maybe to change gears somewhat to ask you about probability theory. So what does an entrepreneur do, for instance, with probability theory? What have you learned about the application of it? Um, and how can an entrepreneur use probability theory to create uh, something of value for the world? The big breakthrough in how we think about probability is going to sound so mundane. So <clears throat> there was this math problem that circulated for 100 years and nobody could solve it. And it's a math problem so simple, um, a 12-year-old could do it now. And it was, it was really easy. It, it said, hey, let's you and I play a game. Let's flip a coin five times, okay? And every time a head comes up, you get a point. And every time a tail comes up, I get a point. And we're going to play the five tosses. And the winner gets all the money in the pot. Well, we're halfway through the game. And you've got two points. I've got one point. And we decide to stop the game. What's the fair way to split that pot? What's the fair way to split the pot? Um, nobody can figure that out. <laughs> Now, in, to us, it's like, well, there's four things that could happen with those final two choices, right? It could be two heads or two tails. It could be a head and a tail or a tail and a head. And those four things, you you would win in three of them. And I'd win in one. I'd win it. There were two more tails in a row. I'd win in one. That's the whole problem. That's the math problem. You should get three quarters and I should get one quarter. That's the answer. That, that question nobody could solve for 100 years. And then Pascal and... Vermont traded these letters and they worked it out and then everybody could solve it. Everybody understood that. Everybody got it. And the big breakthrough was the idea that there are probabilities that are hanging out there in the future that has a 19% chance happening and a 46% chance. And, and it's even unclear to us what we mean by that. Do we mean that? Well, I won't go into all of that. It's even unclear what that means. So the, the, the new thing about probability was this view of the world that there are series of events and you can estimate the likelihood of them happening. And then there are ways you can manipulate that to get ever more complicated things. And it's on that simple thing that we built the modern world. Everything kind of lives on that. Where we build shops and how inventory we put in them and all of this stuff is all basically atop a mountain of uncertainty. So entrepreneurs, they live with uncertainty. And unfortunately, they usually live with the kind of uncertainty that we can't know the odds in advance. So it's it's very difficult. But that's why I think in part, um, because because entrepreneurs are are trying to do something very different than figuring out if it's going to rain tomorrow. 
60% chance of rain. They're trying to um, to do something that nobody's done before. And that's just a whole different calculation. So I don't guess I have a good answer to that question. Well, I guess my where I was kind of going with that is that, uh, what was the name of that device you brought on screen earlier on? The Galton Box or the Galton Box. Okay, the Goldson box. So in that way, when you were flipping that, the 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 iron balls they all always formed the same uh, shape. It was like a, a graph, like a mountain top. Um, and so that that to me means that the world is built on rules, um, and that if you understand the rules, and you also, I suppose, by extension, you recognize that there's almost like a blueprint for everything. Um, and that as a founder entrepreneur, if you are able to see the future, which is what part of the premise of your book, that if you could, you could use things like probability to establish whether something will work or not. Um, and that's kind of where I was going. Cause there's, 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 there is a blueprint for everything. There was a billionaire, um, that, um, I had on the show recently, and he was basically saying, look, I don't care what it is that you want to start. Like there's a blueprint for it. Most of the time, and if there isn't, you can combine things that that have worked historically, so that you can now create a new blueprint for this thing that you want to create. So I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, is it possible in your expertise for a founder entrepreneur to really create anything they want? Because I think there's a premise in the minds of a lot of founders where they believe that certain things are not possible. And so if you change your mindset to things being possible, in other words, you're no longer stuck in this world of improbability, that you can shift your mindset to one of probability. Well, it's probably going to happen or it's likely to happen. And therefore, it's worth me starting this business or not. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So it's about, you know, using what you've learned in this book of yours when you were writing and researching and that kind of thing around how entrepreneurs, are they likely to succeed or not and and what's the the relationship between probability and like the mindset of the human itself because there's internal rules and internal uh rules too um and so that's the relationship i'd like to discuss like what's your advice or experience in that so i'm uh, I've, I've been an entrepreneur f- of, for a long time really since i was 12 uh, i mean i started a business and it really was a uh and it really was a real business, and it, it, it worked. But throughout my career, I would say I fail vastly more often than I succeed. And uh, and I wish I had wish I, there was a funny punchline to that, but there isn't. That's just my experience. I fail most of the time. Now, I make up for it by doing lots of things so that the few times I succeed. But I, I have a whole different rule book that doesn't have any anything really to do with probability. For instance. Um, I'll tell you two 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 businesses I launched the same day. I, I had all these websites that were getting a lot of traffic, but I, I didn't have a way to monetize it. So I said, I'll make some businesses and run ads, my own ads, on my websites. And so I came up with these two. One of them, it was an idea of singing telegrams delivered over the telephone. So you could go to this website and pay $10 and pick your friend's birthday and then find a little happy birthday song and enter their phone number and hit it. And then on their birthday, they're going to get a singing telegram delivered on their phone. All right. Then the second idea was letters from Santa Claus mailed to your kids from North Pole, Alaska. So they have a North Pole postmark. Okay. I launched both of those. They were both my ideas and thought they were both pretty good. Uh, The singing telegrams, nobody, nobody, nobody bought one. Nobody, no pity order. None of my friends, my mom didn't buy one, nobody bought one. Now, those letters from Santa, I have sold 800,000 of them uh, and, and and had all these spinoff products that have done well, and that became a real thing. Now, both of those ideas look the same to me going in, and in no way I could have applied probability, I think, to any of that. My, to me, kind of the things that I've learned as an entrepreneur are um, don't believe what you think because you're – don't we we all are capable of uh, deluding ourselves the way we make decisions let's say there's you have a company and you have all these employees and you're you're trying to decide whether you should do a or b and the way you do that is the ceo kind of sits in the middle and a person gets up and says here's why we should do a 
And then the B person says, here's why we should do B. And then you pick one. But all you've done is pick the person who could argue the best. That has no particular correlation to who's right. I had eight years of speech and debate, and we go back and forth, back and forth. You were arguing for it, then against it, for it, then against it, for it, then against it. And what I learned is good debaters always win and bad debaters don't. And so our way of even picking what's right is wrong because we're so um, we're, we're kind of so bad at it. All we can do is be like, I, I, I like like what he said. It's like, yeah, but that may not have anything to do with what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had like a series of, of rules like that that try to. And, and then one one final one is um, when I when I look at my ideas, I try not to put myself in them. I'm like. That was a terrible idea. That was awful. I don't say I had a bad idea or I failed. It failed. It was a bad idea. Um, and so I don't I don't carry that with me. And I don't feel like I and my value is wrapped up into that. And by the way, the, the reverse works just as well. When things finally do work and it's raining money, uh, it's not about you. I mean, like, well, that worked. But you can't let it go to your head either because you know how many times you fail. And so I, I think most more of my like how I think as an entrepreneur are is built around not falling into logical pitfalls that are that are really common that I fell into for so many years. Yeah, I think a lot of us um, have that history. If you're an entrepreneur around like yesterday, I had coffee with a, a guy who runs uh, Pizu Ventures here in Denver. Um, and he was also saying he's like, you know, he's failed way more than he succeeded in this game of entrepreneurship. So from his perspective, it's not too dissimilar from yours and mine in the sense of there are no, there, there might be rules and blueprints for how to do things, but whether you, but it's much, much harder to know from a probability perspective, whether something was going to work to your point, the Christmas uh, letters from Santa versus the other thing. Why did that work? I don't know. Right. Right. You just don't know. But I think the the point is maybe the takeout on that one is you have to actually try. You have to try and test to see whether it will work. And so that's why most entrepreneurs have a lot of failure around them because that's how you succeed. Right? You have to have those failures like business A, right? So that business B can win. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to like it. It's not fun. It never gets fun. Uh, but that's exactly right. I mean, I make up for it by trying lots of things and, uh, because you know, that, that, the quote about, um, enlightened trial and error outperforms the reasoning of a flawless intellect. And so I try enlightened trial and error. And so what you want to do is try to, this isn't anything new. You want to try to fail fast and, and then, uh, get as much out of your successes as possible. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are better, much better at it than me, because there are people who have multiple successes in a row. And then you think, okay, they're actually really good at it. I'm just like bumbling my way through it. Uh, but I do what I can. Well, I mean, if you take the same principle, uh, Byron, that we're discussing now to venture capitalists, what they do is they back 20 startups. Mm-hmm knowing that one of those is going to give them a 20x return. They also don't know, right? And that's always like, well, you must back the jockey. No, you must back the team. Or do you back the business? It's like, I don't know, maybe all those things. But it seems to me like in the world of business, there's just a lot of unknown. And it's like the more you think you know, the more you actually find that you don't know. It's like, well, are we going to build general intelligence? I don't know. You know, yes, definitely, we definitely can do it. Like 97 of the 100 said, yes, we definitely can do it. They probably also don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's interesting because, um, and maybe this is a great point of departure to ask my next question, which is around what is your experience in terms of intuition? Is intuition, like you, you said earlier about memories, I don't know where the memory came from. Like nobody knows where that's practically stored and recalled. Yeah, intuition. Yeah, so is that a, is it a skill that people can develop? Um, and how have you used intuition in your own life to create success? I, I don't know how to develop it. I'm writing another book that's due in 54 days, according to the timer on my mantle. Uh, and in it, it's, it is about uh, long. Anyway, in it, uh, I talked about how knowledge is, really distributed through your body it's not just in your head like there's nothing particularly 
weird about that. Like your immune system is knowledge. It knows what to attack. And it's not part of your brain. It's, it's you know, it's part of your body. Uh, there's all kinds of knowing in, in your body. And you have about as many neurons in your stomach lining as a rat has in its brain. So your stomach's probably about as smart as a rat. Uh, is it? Does it have a separate consciousness that is like, oh my gosh, he's eating hot sauce again? Like, what? what is it with this guy? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, when I ask you, like, if I gave you like a little math problem, like, 44 plus 27. Can you do that in your head? Yep. And where, well, I, I said in your head, can you do that without writing it down? Yes. Yeah. Where does it feel like you're thinking about the answer to that? Or when you were trying to recall the flower bowl incident, does it feel like it's in your head? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it does to me too, but that's a cultural feeling. That's a cultural feeling. That's not a real feeling because we know this because uh, for most of human history, they didn't think it was your brain. The Egyptians saved everything of a dead body because they might need it in the afterlife, but they threw the brain away because they thought its only purpose was to cool the blood. Aristotle thought that was the only purpose of the brain, too, that it really. And, and they, in turn, said, oh, the root of, of, of knowledge is in the heart. That's why you learn things by heart. Um, you have a change of heart. And um, other people think it's in the kidneys. It's often thought to be in the liver. It can be in the stomach. And and there may be a little bit in all of it. It's like no, uh, th that feeling you get of feeling uh, butterflies in your stomach when you're nervous, that is not a cultural feeling. That's a real thing. That's that brain uh, freaking out. So I think intuition is that rat brain in your stomach talking to you. And the rat could be right or wrong, but it isn't. it isn't something you're imagining. Uh, you got to, I guess, figure out when the rat knows what he's talking about or not. There was this interesting um, uh, story I, I read recently about a heart transplant uh, that happened on this uh, individual. And it was a she, and she started getting memories that weren't hers after she had had this new heart put into her uh, body. It's fascinating. That has been studied pretty extensively. Uh and I'm of multiple minds about it. So the fact that it has actual scientific papers written about it validates that it, that, that is a, a legitimate question of scientific inquiry. Most of the studies find anecdotal evidence of very compelling things, like a guy who didn't used to like music, uh, it got the heart of an 18-year-old kid, now listens to loud music and and uh, headphones got a new stereo in his car, which he had never talked about doing, and uh, speeds a lot now. Uh, and so you, you you read those, and they're real. But it's like we found three of those in 47 people you looked at. And so you don't quite know what to do with it. Uh, I, I don't know that it's, it's not ridiculous that um, you have cellular memory. We know about epigenetics, that like things that happen to you in your life affect your DNA, and that immediately starts manifesting the in, in the proteins it creates and all of that. So it's not ridiculous, uh, but it is hard to uh, it is hard to prove. It's so far been hard to prove. Because you see, getting a heart transplant may cause you to, like one person got the heart transplant of a vegan and became a vegan. And I think, well, maybe they just became a vegan because they had a heart attack and decided, oh, I better eat better. So yeah. you don't know, you know uh, what it is, but I find it fascinating. It is fascinating. Well, um, your book, um, when is it coming out? Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. On the 23rd of this month, five days from now. Five days from now. So it is up on the screen here, guys. Uh, go get it on Amazon. Uh, Byron, just one more question for you, and then we'll wrap up. Why do you do what you do? Obviously, you're a multiple-time author. Why do you write about this sort of thing? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I usually write in bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Oh, classic. Um, so what happens is I don't enjoy writing at, at all. And like, really? I, <laughs> I, I, really don't. I mean, like, I enjoy having written immensely. Don't get me wrong. But I keep going downstairs like every few days because I'm in this deadline. And I keep going up to my wife and I'm like, okay, I'm going to finish this book. But I'm never writing another word as long as I live. Like, I can't do this. Um, and she just smiles at me 
I don't know what that means. Maybe she's heard this a few times before and it's never really true. Uh, so, no, I find it very hard and draining and it's just a slog every minute of the way. It's just a slog. I mean, I also write books of humor fiction and uh, those are easy. They're fine. You could pick that up six months later and keep writing. And I, I giggle when I'm writing it. Like, But the kind of books I write are just slogs because everything has to be fact-checked like 12 ways to Sunday. And it goes, oh, in any case. So I do it uh, because I don't really know how not to do it. Yeah, so I, it's, I, I think, ah, I want to write about that. I want to think about that. I want to mull it and grab the... I mean, but I know Isaac Asimov. He wrote from 7.30 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, seven days a week. He loved it. Yeah, writing a book is <clears throat> definitely the hardest thing or one of the hardest things you can do after being a parent. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's why I've only had like three hours sleep last night. So I'm like yeah. trying to hold on to this conversation because <laughs> of my children. <laughs> but, uh, but Byron, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real privilege. I will read your book. Um, and uh, I wish you all the very best uh, for its success. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back if you'd have me. You have a good day. You too. Cheers, Byron. Hi there, guys, and thank you so much for checking out the Matt Brown Show. If you want more content like this, head on over to YouTube where you can catch my Million Dollar Principles channel and more interviews on the Matt Brown Show YouTube channel. Get weekly thought pieces and advice and so, so, so much more. And don't forget to like and subscribe for more Matt Brown Show episodes. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.